it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. Or this week, something we probably don't do enough of, and we head across the ditch to visit Deep Creek Brewing in Auckland. Deep Creek recently launched a series of collaborations with Australian brewers called the Local Lockdown Series. For a brewery that took out the small International Brewery Award at the 2017 Australian International Beer Awards, I realised that I know very little about its background or its approach. So I arranged to catch up with Paul Brown, one half of the founding team, to learn a little bit more about how the pair of homebrewers launched their brew pub in 2011 and built it into an exporting production brewery shipping beer to Australia, as well as China, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, Scandinavia, and also the UK. Beer being a conversation, this chat went a little differently than I had anticipated. I'd been looking to discuss the growth of the business from a suburban brew pub to a fully-fledged production business that also exports, and looking at the challenges involved in that. And we do do that, but we also take a couple of long detours into such things as the challenges facing Pilsner in a hazy world, and also a deep dive into tap contracts and their impact on competition. We also chat about Deep Creek and the lessons learned in 10 years of business. Hope you enjoy my chat with Paul Brown. Paul Brown, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thank you. I'm uh, pleased to be on. I have to um, ask you the first question we ask most people, and this is probably a little bit more relevant um, given our audience is predominantly Australian, but uh, who is Paul Brown? Who am I? Yeah. Man, that's a question and a half. Um, I suppose I uh, started off Going from a career point of view, I started off uh, doing like land development. Geez, pushing 20 years ago now, about 17 years ago. Um, so I was doing a, a lot of uh, you know, subdivisions, uh, engineering design, things like that, um, and got thoroughly bored of it, probably wasn't very good at it. <laughs> um, then we, we started doing a lot of um, home brewing, myself and my business partner, Jared. And at that point in time, we um, basically started all our friends were basically taking more than we could produce at the time, which was getting a bit ridiculous. So we, um, and, and it was always Jared's dream to uh, open a brew pub, so that's what we did. But I'm just intrigued uh, about the land development side of things. So was that the first thing that you did out of school or, you know, when you finished school, did you go to uni or, you know? Did... Yeah, so, so out of university, yeah. Well, to start with, I actually did, um, I was actually working down in uh, Otago, doing um, uh, like basically surveys for the regional council to determine um, what the rivers were doing as far as uh, sediment control and um, sediment extraction and what the and what the water levels were doing. So I did that for a couple of years, which was which was amazing. Which was basically going through blocks of central Otago doing that sort of work. Uh, a lot of four wheel driving, a lot of uh, pretty rough stuff. It was it was great fun. And yeah, and then um, went from there into more traditional sort of yeah subdivisions and you know stormwater sewage design, roading design, stuff like that. Did you always have an entrepreneurial streak? Yeah, was it always part of your vision that you would be 
working for yourself and creating something or were you a little bit like me where you just always saw yourself working for somebody else's business? I personally always saw myself at some point in my life working for myself. I probably, until this, never really had a a, uh, a way it would happen. So, but, but I remember being young, I always wanted to, to do something for myself. But I just was never really sure what it was. So beer kind of became your purpose? Yeah, yeah. Definitely once we once we got into it, it definitely became became my purpose and what I wanted to um, to really grow a business in. The other thing that fascinates me about brewers is what was it about home brewing? You know, what was uh, like a lot of university students or a lot of <laughs> young people, home brewing is the way to get your hands on lots of cheap beer. Um, or was it the creative process that lured you in straight away? I think personally, it was probably um, a combination of the creative and, and the um, and the the science behind it, the, the understanding what's going on, what's going on with the ferments, what's going on, you know, on the hot side, cold side, just what all the processes and and more the scientific side of it, basically. And also, you know, we, we we're doing it on a, on a shoestring budget, so it was. You know, we were building our own temperature controllers, things like that, which I always, you know, really enjoyed. So, again, I mean, even that fascinates me because a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of brewers start doing the kit and kilo or getting into it, and then it's gradually drawn into some of the more, you know, interesting, deeper elements of the science. You you were attracted to it for the science from the beginning? I, th- I think in my case, absolutely, yeah. I um, I just really enjoyed understanding more and, and when something wouldn't work, understanding why and when it did work, getting an idea for that as well. I think I think it was um, probably what what drove me more than anything else, probably more than the free beer, I'd say. <laughs> well, it's not free if you factor in your time, uh, is what a lot of... Oh, no, 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 that's the most expensive beer I've ever drunk, if you, if you factor that in. <laughs> so what was it that... It made you decide to go from the the garage brewery where you're tinkering um, and you know it becomes a hobby into you and Jared thinking you know th- there's something in this let's let's have a crack. To be honest, looking back, it was very much driven by Jared that side of it, and um, I was interested and I wanted to do it, but I probably took a bit of convincing to really get me over the line in the first place. Why? Um, oh, you know, I was comfortable doing what I was doing and. Um, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a big change, a lot of money. Um, so it took a bit of, bit of, and also I, I understood that it was going to be my life from then on in. So uh, it, was a, it was a big call. Um, but yeah, what what I, I, I just really liked the concept of doing that professionally. And also at the time, you're looking in 2011, um, craft beer was very, it certainly wasn't nearly as mainstream as it is today. And I really wanted to do something uh, with the community to sort of make it more well-known and more understood by regular people in you know, suburban Auckland. It's changed drastically. In, like when you sort of think back to you know, 2011 when you when you opened, um, it doesn't seem like that long ago. It's not even a decade, just coming up on a decade. But in, in beer terms, the market's changed drastically, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, um, you definitely couldn't get away with launching a business like we did these days. It's a definitely mature <laughs> sort of um, mature industry that you really need to know what you're doing. And at the time, I mean, we, we learned so much just trial and error, a lot of error, you know. That, that's one of the things that I think 
uh, a lot of brewers now don't realise that there's not the same margin for error. There's not the same, you know, ability to, you know, to experiment and trial. You need to get it right much quicker now, don't you? There's so much um, grey beer out there these days that you, especially if you're starting off, you make a couple of bad batches and, you know, it's over. So let's go back to when Jared finally uh, convinced you to, uh, to to dive in and you, you went for the brew pub. Um, tell us how you went about it. You know, so it, it, it sounds like when you talk about there were mistakes you made, you know, what was, did you sit down and have a business plan and costings and know what you were doing or was it a little bit more uh, suck it and see? Um, we definitely had a business plan. Um, I actually read that recently um, out of interest. Um, and, you know, it, it was pretty well thought out and came more or less what we, what happened. Our costings were done, but they were, yeah, they, they certainly weren't accurate, um, <laughs> especially, especially around the profit and loss sort of things. They, they weren't <laughs> too bad on, on the build because both of us had experience in, in, you know, that sort of project work. But as far as, um, like long-term business, I remember looking at the, at the, both the expected revenue and um, and expected costs were so far underdone. Um, you know, we, we were we were projecting like half or under half what we actually did in revenue, and our, our cost projection were way out as well. Just going back to the business plan, uh, if you read it recently, is there anything that you're willing to share? Like, what was the the gist of the business plan? What was your what was your aim? The aim was to set up a, a presence in you know in the North Shore of Auckland, so suburban Auckland. To have a you know a place that people could come and enjoy interesting different variety quality beer, so that was all the, the crux of it. And then on top of that, we we basically had a lot of stuff in our plan about uh, you know competitive advantages. So one of the main ones was location. We had a, a location where there was just not a whole lot else around. Which I mean, there are a lot of other businesses like a lot of you know cafes, post offices, all the rest of it, but there weren't much in the way of bars, let alone craft beer bars. And, you know, we had had a lot of friends saying, well, why don't you go to the city? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing this? Why are you going to, you know, what was effectively an old old person's village of Browns Bay? And and the business plan is pretty well detailed why we went there, and it really worked out for us. Um, What else was in there? There's a, a lot of stuff around... Um, what we wanted to achieve as far as you know, first converting people over to a new style of beer, and then pushing on down the track into um, into you know packaged product, which we basically followed as as described. And there's also a lot of information about um, different advisors and uh, resources that we wanted to utilise. And about 50% of that we pretty well followed exactly to the plan. So, so you opened, and it, it was initially just to be a, a, a brew pub, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Talk us through the uh, the range that you opened with on day one. Okay, we had <laughs> day one. We had a a pale ale, we had a, a lager. It's very stereotypical. Um, we had an IPA, we had an amber ale. Of all things, don't seem to have them anymore. And we had a, um, a imperial, well, an imperial brown ale. Well, I wouldn't even call it that. It's more like a brown IPA yep. and the dusty green. Yeah. Um, so that that was pretty much what we started with. Um, it was it was pretty interesting times because we, yeah, we didn't we, we had very little um, 
virtually no commercial brewery experience. I'd spent a few days with Hallatow learning a like crash course, um, but that was about it. And um, so things like carbonation on a grand scale and things, we had no idea. So we, we were turning up with flat beer. We we're trying to carbonate on the day, and oh, it, was just, it was a nightmare. But um, yeah, we managed to get through it. And we put a lot of other people's beer on, especially at the start, until we were happy with what we were doing. But yeah, it was... It was, um, it was a significantly different range to what you'd get away with today. It, it, well, it's, it's funny that you say that because you described it as a stereotypical range and uh, it, it probably was for its time, but you were also opening after the time that a lot of breweries opened with a wheat beer or a Belgian wit or some of, you know, or an English uh, mild style beers, which were, you know, probably that half decade um, or, or, or further before. Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit, bit past that, but yeah, it was... Um, yeah, the, the things that, like the, the parallels, I mean, we had a parallel that wasn't dry hopped, which is, this day and age seems bizarre. That's, <laughs> who would have thought, like, who, make, who makes that anymore? And um, we had, you know, an amber ale. Nobody makes, well, very few amber ales are around anymore. And it, But I remember back in those times, everybody had that. You know, you, you'd, you'd go and that's sort of range people had, and, and that's what the customers expected. Now it's, it's completely different. You need to, you know, you triple dry hopped hazy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite a different world. Although uh, looking at your, uh, your your list now, and we'll sort of come to the production brewery side of what you do, but you do have uh, a beer that you describe as a traditional Czech style pilsner. How does that go for you? Not as well as we'd like. It goes well. Um, it's a great beer. You're talking about the undercurrent, right? We we yep. you know we've done very well with it, mm. um, and it's you know won a lot of medals, and it, it does very well in, in in bars that we have it on. Uh, people love to buy it, but Oh, that's actually it's, it's funny you should say that there's something I really want to work on this year to, to really drive sales of that particular product because it, it, it is a fantastic beer I, I drink it all the time it's, it's brilliant and you know it's it's done really well in awards I think the branding's right I think it's just a matter of us trying to really drive the distribution a lot better than what it currently is Look, if, if you need an ambassador for it, it's because it's it's the, my favourite style. And just in the last week, we've reported on, uh, or we, we've seen two breweries that I know of drop their their pilsner because they, as much as brewers love them, you know, when you ask a brewer what they love to drink, a good pilsner is one is one of the things that they just get very misty eyed about. But the market, well, the current market doesn't seem to 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 uh, you know, grab them, um, and you know, I've, I've got my thoughts for why that might be, but it's a, it's just a hard one to crack. I'm interested to hear your thoughts actually on that one because I've got my own as well. Yeah, look, I, I think pilsners, you know, like a true pilsner, um, has a little bit more malt body than your, your mainstream lager. Um, it's you know has a more robust bitterness than your mainstream lager, and so it's almost too challenging for people that just like to drink and not have their palates challenged, which is still the mainstream. But then when it comes to the craft beer drinker, it's not exciting enough. It's not uh, edgy and punch them in the mouth enough um, to give them the the excitement that they like. And, I, you know, I, I think that, um, and I'll probably get a lot of people's no, you know, uh, noses out of joint with this comment, but I think that to some extent there is an immaturity about the craft beer market where people want obvious flavours um, that they can immediately identify with um, and, and not things that are that little bit more... The, the, the promise is a little bit less obvious. So And pilsners just fall into that thing where 
you know, brewers love them because of the complexity and they understand the skill and they bring their own layers, but they're not exciting enough for people outside and they're too challenging for people that like a traditional lager. Interesting. And one's similar to an extent. I'm not sure I agree that it's too challenging for, say, your stereotypical Heineken drinker. I think there's definitely a stronger hot profile and a little bit more malt, but I don't. I don't think that's necessarily the problem. I reckon there's an issue within the industry and that we haven't marketed the product to those consumers enough to to, um, explain to them that it is actually premium. So they look at it and maybe, you know, they've got inexperienced palates or they're not entirely sure. And they go, well, you know, I like it a little bit better than a Heineken, but it's twice the price. And to them, there's not a huge amount of difference. I think if we can really drive what the what the differences are and what makes this product better to those consumers, I think we can convert them. That's that, that's a really good point. And I guess that's the other thing is that it's almost too similar. Um, it, it, it's not different enough from the mainstream to justify that price difference yeah, with the education. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's the perception amongst the, what should probably be the target, well, a lot of the target market for it. And I guess the, the, that idea of challenge that I've developed, I do a lot of uh, beer tastings in, in, in corporate um, environments, just taking beers that I think will fit the, the occasion and the feedback I constantly get. Um, and because I don't actually sell any of the beers and I'm not repping any of the brands, sometimes I, I, I think that I get that feedback that is, you know, it, it is not couched, you know, by worrying about hurting my feelings as the brewer. Um, and... Yep. You know, if you do pull out a pilsner, um, the, the the feedback that I get is, oh, it, it's it, it's heavier than the, the beers I normally drink, like heavier right. in terms of flavour and things like that. And uh, so, yeah, it, it may be something that education can get around and sort of explaining can get around. But the initial taste, without that little bit of hand holding, the, the first impression is it does have so much more going on as a generally an all malt beer with you know sort of more of, of, a, of a hop body to it. It's interesting. Yeah, I might do a bit of research on that. Mm. Um, yeah, because it's definitely a, uh, definitely something I really want to for ourselves. And I think you know, there's uh, there's other breweries that are pushing well. You know, you, um, but I, I definitely think it's a uh, it's a type of beer that has legs, and mm. it's just about um, correctly, you know, marketing that to people. God, I hope I hope it does have legs because it's the style of beer that about uh, it, it, it's just the beer that I go to. You know, when I want to j- just uh, in, enjoy, you know, deeply enjoy a beer. I'll tell you what: when we package an undercurrent, the brewers always hang around for beers after work. You know. <laughs> well, that, that's funny, and we've sort of gone down a bit of a rabbit hole here. But do you have a lot of young brewers on the team? Nah, no. Our um, so we've got a brewing team of um, three. I suppose one's in his early 40s and two are um, late 20s, early 30s. Okay, so there, okay, well, I'm, I'm 50, so that's uh, fairly young for me. But uh, one of the things that I often hear from the Australian brewers who make them or, um, you know, when, when we, you start talking about the some of the more extreme forms of hazies, 
it's the young brewers. You know, they almost apologetically say, "Well, we've made one of these because we need to keep the young brewers engaged." Um, where you get the feeling that they are more interested in, you know, a, a good pale ale or a or, or a pilsner. So I'm I'm not surprised to hear you say that the, the brewers hang around because uh, pilsners do seem to be a, a brewers beer. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I remember when um, it was 2017 um, AIBAs. They had. Um, down in um, in Catfish, they had uh, Commons there. Mm-hmm. That uh, that lager or Pilsner lager, I can't remember. They've gone under now, but unfortunately, but um, it was absolutely incredible. Eh? I remember just that how many brewers were there. Just we must have drunk four or five kegs. It was absolutely <laughs> crazy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we we like we always just we, we've got a lager as well, which um, we don't really package. We just do into keg. And um, you know, the, when either of those two have been packaged, the guys just love it. So, yeah, you know, and so clearly, a, well, with our brewers, in a way, clearly a, a favourite. <laughs> well, we, we've uh, rapidly turned this into Pilsner as a conversation, not beer as a conversation. <laughs> so, I, 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 oh, we'll broaden it out, eh? Should have gone to Hazy. <laughs> yeah, well, we will get to Hazy because we'll sort of, uh, talk a little bit about that. But I am looking forward to, uh, as soon as this uh Promised travel bubble opens up and I can get to New Zealand uh, joining you for an undercurrent. Um, and, oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, in, in thoroughly enjoying a beer. Now, just going back to 2011 when you did open, so so that was the um, range that you had. It was a, a fairly traditional range. How was it received by the locals? You know, you talked about your uh, business advantages being your, you know, in a community um, with businesses around, how did the local community uh, embrace you from the day the doors opened? We had queues outside the doors before we opened. It was crazy. We, we did a soft opening with you know, you know, family, friends, and everything, and we had people demanding to be let in. It was crazy. <laughs> um, so we like immediately took off, and it, it was it was down to um, you know, it was down to I suppose we we'd been building it for four or five months as well. So people kept on walking past, looking at it, seeing progress through the windows slowly as we were getting the bar built. And, um, yeah, we went mental straight away. And uh, we had obviously some people that it wasn't for them, the bears, but, you know, there's a bar in town that, you know, sold Heineken and other DB products. So that they went down there. And most people were really appreciative of what we were making. Again, it's one of those things that um, splits brewers in 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 their approach um, and, and and craft beer people. Some people say, "Well, look, here's my offering. You need to step up to it if you are a say a Heineken drinker." Whereas others, and it's quite often after they've been open for a while and they've had some of that, um, you know, soup Nazi um, adamant um, a, a, a approach to what they do knocked out of them, and they've started making like a really approachable lager a, a good lager but you know like a something that is designed for the beer drinker that loves their heineken is happy to you know drink an alternative but still you know right in that neighborhood is that what prompted you to make the lager that you uh, said that you've uh, created yeah so that that was created so that's the nikau uh, which is named after a new zealand palm um that was, mate, when did we make that? Probably three years ago we started making it. And it's probably, uh, and, and the brew pub took over as the number one beer. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if we were overly, we were it probably definitely had an element of, well, this is what we're trying to achieve. And I'm not sure it's so much a, uh, you know, 
say you either fall into line or you don't. But I don't I don't think it was necessarily a, a case of um, like a soup Nazi type thing. I think it was more um, we knew we needed a point of difference, and we you know that's what we achieved. Probably more worried about veering off what we wanted to achieve and losing um, losing sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably at that point in time why we were a little bit hesitant to, to make something like that. And at what point did you feel confident that you could do it without losing your sense of yourself or that you didn't need to have such a, a marked point of difference? Yeah, a little less hard-nosed. Um, oh, well, I, I suppose it was around 2017, which is when we started making it. Um, uh the Nico was actually uh, brewer driven as well. We had a had a brewer that really wanted to make one, and he actually drove us along to, and we said, "Okay, fine, we'll we'll, we'll make it." So it wasn't necessarily uh, even really a um, management driven thing. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, we'd just won champion small national brewery as well, which probably gave us a lot of confidence in what we were doing, and probably gave us the confidence that we could, you know, if we wanted to do something like that, we could do that and wouldn't necessarily lose any sort of. Um, yeah, it wouldn't lose our character. Mm-hmm. And it, well, a lot happened for you in 2017, and because as you said, that's when you won the champion small international brewery at the AIBAs, and you also started exporting on the back of that to Australia. Uh, and and when, when did you open the production brewery? We actually opened this place in right at the end of 2012. Okay, so, so it was a very swift transition from the brew pub to the production Brewery. But we did, in between, around the same time, we opened two other bars as well. So the production brewer is basically serving the three bars. To go back to 2017, jumping around a little bit, I know, but um, it was a really, really busy year because we, we won that award. We were basically started exporting in anger into Australia. We are doing a little bit into Melbourne at the end of 2016, but we you know, got a nationwide distributor and experienced it and, um, and really started pushing hard. And we also sold two of our bars. Uh, yeah, two of our bars. It was like a manic year. So we sort of at that that was the year we sort of flipped from primarily seeing ourselves as a, you know, effectively a, like a hospitality group into a hundred percent brewer. What drove that change? It was probably, to be honest, driven earlier than that. Um, as far as a psychological thing for us, it would have been, I would imagine, twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. Uh, we really started focusing more on on quality we bought a lot of quality assurance equipment we um put a lot of processes in place to improve uh we did a lot of work over those two years and then i think 2017 we just had the confidence to to let go of that hospitality site and focus our energies into the uh, into the brewing side i'm really interested in in that and you know how that's worked out for you because at the moment in australia we're seeing a lot of breweries that almost started as production breweries start to edge back you know, or, or edge into looking at controlling their retail destiny with you know, opening their, their own hospitality venues. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so we, we've actually sold our original bar as well. So we sold that uh, late last year. So now we, we own zero bars now. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying we'll never go back into hospitality. But, you know, it's a lot of work and it's pretty risky. It's a difficult thing because I think a lot of people do, you know, hospitality and brewing, obviously. 
But both of those industries actually quite hard to operate in. And to do two at once is, is a lot of work. It's a lot of overhead, a lot of management overhead. So I I understand why 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 a lot of breweries are getting into Hospo and you know, it definitely secures your um your your output. But I mean, we're we're going fine on, on, on volumes now without it and it's a lot of headache. I'd rather spend I'd rather spend that time into to growing our core business. Well, I guess stepping back, what made you open a brew pub to start with and then quickly open a, a couple of other bars? Was it always your intention to get into the production side? Um, well, we, originally we never intended to – it was never part of our um, part of our business plan at the start. It was never part of it to, to sell all of our bars. Our, our intention at the start were to be, you know, brew pub, maybe a couple, and, and also doing – Doing retail sales, you know, you know, off prem, on prem, mm. through other other retailers. But yeah, brew pubs were always originally part of our part of our plan, and that, that definitely changed. Yeah, around 2017, 2018, for 2017, it really changed. What What's the the market in New Zealand like for a production brewery that is wholesaling? Um, over in Australia, it, it's very competitive because the tap contracting situation means that there are very few taps and there's a lot of breweries fighting for those. Is it um, similar in New Zealand or is it a, a slightly easier route to um, to, to market? Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I want to answer this one. Um, <laughs> look, I believe it's around about the same as far as tied taps and everything. Line and DB have a lot of tied taps. I don't think it's much different to Australia. You've got free houses and you've got tied ones and there's I would I would have a guess that there's similar percentages in mm-hmm. both countries. Uh, you might have one slightly more than the other, but uh, you know, to all intents and purposes, and the way you operate, that's probably more or less the same. I think New Zealand doesn't quite have that same drive for margin at at the pub level, so you you, you can sell kegs a little bit more expensive. I, I, I believe that it's, I mean everything I've seen in Australia is extremely tight margins on keg, to the point that we basically just don't bother in Australia with kegs because we'll be losing money. Mm-hmm. Especially when you include the freight and one-way kick fees and everything, it's just a, just a killer. Um, but yeah, over here, and also I think I think retail over here, I think it's a little easier. I think you've got more um, you've got more. I wouldn't say independence, but you've got more sort of um, more franchise top operations rather than centrally controlled. So you can saw more um, more do deals at a store level rather than at a national level or a state level, um, which when you're especially a smaller one, it makes life a little easier. Um, you might find for some of the bigger breweries, like um, you know, guys like Bolter, that it might actually be definitely preferable to operate in that Australian system. But I think New Zealand's definitely quite decentralised in comparison. Particularly in Australia, we look at New Zealand as being a much smaller geographic market how homogenous is the new zealand market you know like is a is the approach in auckland drastically different to wellington for example our approach is the same um i think the consumers might be slightly different i think um wellington is probably a, a, you know new zealand's craft beer hub that's probably where you have the highest percentage of population that drink craft beer i would mm. say um and also probably the some of the most adventurous ones as well. So you have other areas maybe where they're quite 
um, quite a lot of craft beer drinkers, but they might be a little bit less adventurous in what they're choosing to drink than, say, in Wellington. Um, Wellington, for us, probably sells almost as much as Auckland, and we're an Auckland-based brewery. Mm. So, so it's definitely, you know, you know, definitely more more demand down there, you know, considering that the city's a third the size or a bit over a third the size of Auckland here that's going through, for us, almost as much, and we're an Auckland-based brewery, pretty crazy when you, when you look at it. But the the thing with Wellington is um, sort of pressure down there, like a lot of breweries are pushing it at one time. And maybe one thing I think that makes Auckland a little bit more difficult in some ways is that's where the big breweries are based. So I, I think there's a lot more pressure from them for, you know, tie bars. So I, I'm pretty sure the... You know, when they see a free house, they try and take it in Auckland, whereas maybe they flip, they, you know, flip under the radar a little bit in other parts of the country. Just to give us a a, a bit of uh, like a frame for where Deep Creek sits in 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 the beer market, are, are you willing to sort of share roughly how much your annual production volumes are, just to give us an idea of scale? Yeah, we're doing a bit over a million litres a year at the moment. Okay, and and what percentage is keg versus um, pack for you? Maybe 60 percent pack. Okay. Well, one of the arguments for tied houses or, or tap contracts in Australia is that it's a way for breweries to forecast volume. Um, you know, and whilst the, the, the beer drinker looks at it as a way of denying choice, uh, brewery, and we're, we're seeing uh, growing breweries in Australia, uh, craft breweries in Australia start to pick up this mindset as well, is that, you know, if they know roughly how many taps they've got, they can forecast production and, you know, confidently invest in their brand. Um, is there the same sort of feeling in, uh, you know, amongst New Zealand brewers that if you've, if you've got certainty of taps, then it, it lets you invest in your, in your business with a little bit more confidence? No, I don't buy that argument personally, but anyway. <laughs> um, you're seriously telling me that Carlton United need to have a, a tap tied up and Wollongong to know how much they're going to make of Calvin Draft. <laughs> I'm, I'm just reporting what I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, like, surely you get to a point when there's you know, such a big population size of, of customers that, you know, some drop on, some come off, but overall it sort of ends up the same, you know? Mm. Yeah, when, you, when you're talking about individual contracts being worth, you know, one ten thousandth of your total sales, does it really... Do you really need it? I don't know. How, how about the smaller breweries? Do, do you see that in, in, in New Zealand? Um, see, for us, definitely it would help um, because we have, you know, certain SKUs where, you know, a few accounts go through a large percentage of, of the total amount. So for us, yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah, look, I, uh, we, could, we could talk all day about this. Um, <laughs> and and uh, there's no right answer of, with um, a lot of people, but um, yeah, I, I just uh, I kind of look. We've got some tied taps, but we, you know, th- th- those are the rules of the game. You know, yep. You know, we we can't we can't compete in any way with not playing by the same rules as somebody else. You know, mm. um, do I think that they should be regulated against? Yeah, probably. You, you basically determining what the consumer can drink. But you're getting contracts that people aren't necessarily necessarily doing their due diligence before signing them. So you get a contract with, say, Lion, that maybe maybe if they actually ran the numbers 
thoroughly and looked across all options. It may not as may not be as good as the line rep tells them it is. And the thing is, they go for well, a couple of years or whatever they go for, you know, lots of different time frames, but, you know, two or three years or whatever it is. And they're locked in for that period. And, and I, I understand that, yeah, you can't, you know, that, that's up to them to determine whether that's in their best interest or not. But it's, it's definitely not in the, it's not in the consumer's best interest. And, I, I mean, I, look, I, I imagine as somebody who, who watches them um, and, and watches the market that there does tend to be, you know, if you've got a four-year contract, you know, there's a lot of love to get that contract signed. But then, as with anything, uh, the, the, the business can become a little bit complacent in servicing that contract down the track. But then also, four years, as we've already discovered in, in the beer industry, is a long time and consumer tastes can change fairly dramatically. Um, and you're locked into a, uh, you know, a, a, a line that may no longer um, represent what your customers want to drink. Typically, the contracts I've seen over here typically are less about the line and more about the um, the company. So uh, normally you can change what's on tap, my understanding. But even uh, so, like so a, being able to change from a, a rapidly diverse, you know, like a very diverse range of breweries with all of the different uh, variations oh, of yeah. style that they have is, is, is more than a limited, uh, a comparatively limited range of uh, options. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a bunch of downsides. I, I think it's fundamentally anti-competitive to do long-term contracts on a on a on a brewery to a bar. It's like it's fundamentally is non-competitive. You basically sign a contract that they're not going to use the competition. So there's no other way to look at it. It's, it's non-competitive. But um, yeah, that's not to say it should necessarily be not allowed. It's just. But my, my personal opinion is that, yeah, I, I think you're getting people signing up to contracts that probably have a reasonable amount of complexity and just really aren't needed. There's no real reason to do it apart from shoring up the sales. Mm. But uh, we, we, sorry, we rapidly turn this into uh, contracts or a conversation as well. So, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Eh? Oh, no, no, no. Look, again... <laughs> I, I'm going to get Jared listening to this going, oh, man, you just, like, told me everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, well, that, that, that's why it's a conversation because, uh, you know, I, I'd not intended to uh, to, to go uh, down that, but yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating... Uh, but, 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 yeah, well, the thing with contracts is they're definitely weighted against the small players because... There's a whole bunch of things that, like even, say you're a brand new brewery, you could go in with exactly the same contract as Lion, and then nobody's going to sign it because they don't yet trust you, because you're you're fresh and new. I mean, are you, are you going to go and sign a contract with some new brewery that one hasn't got a history of of like of um, consistency? You don't know, you know, how you're going to get in a year if they go to crap. You know, there's all these things that. Uh, make it difficult for the new player to come into it. It's like a big barrier to entry. And the other, the other side as well, you've got like, you know, rebate models and stuff like that. Are you, you going to trust a, a, a new upstart company to actually pay the rebate or do you think they're going to go under before you get paid, you know? <laughs> so there's so many there's so many things that make it so a bar owner wouldn't really want to sign a contract with a new entrant. So there's like a massive competitive advantage to Lion that if, or, or DB or CUB, whoever, that... Um, it does definitely put 
further barriers on new entrants, even if they do have the funding and the ability to to, to generate contracts. Mm. Whereas, you know, if it's just you know free fall when you anybody can sell to anyone, like most other markets of the world, um, you know, those barriers of entry just aren't there. But isn't that um, an issue of scale anyway? Even without the the contracts, a bar owner is going to tend to choose the producer that has reliable supply um, and you know can can be responsive to um, their changing needs as well. And it's you know I've heard a lot of bar owners in Australia that have uh, used a, a small craft brewery um, and then they order up and say, "Hey, that keg went really well. Um, could I grab another one?" Oh, sorry, we actually don't have that. Um, we're brewing that, that's in the tank, you won't have it for two weeks. And so they put on something else and that first beer never gets back on. That's not as the, the same sort of issue um, with a bigger um, craft brewery or even a bigger uh, corporate brewery. Yeah, that's definitely an issue, but it's um, it's not a it's not an anti-competitive issue, though. Mm. Um, yeah, and like a lot of bars don't care. They're like, well, if you're under that, we'll take that. We don't, we don't mind. We'll have either. Mm. But... Um, yeah, I, I, I see it slightly differently because one's a, you know, a effectively generating themselves exclusive use or ex- exclusive rights to sell through a particular premise. Another one's sort of based on on a bit of trust. I, you know, I, I know what you're saying that you know, I'm just my, my point is you don't need to legally add further. Hindrances on top of what's already there. Oh, I, I, I know, and uh, I, I guess that's where um, you know I, I see a lot of small bars in Australia choose out the small breweries because the, the small bar is every bit as um, you know wants a vibrant tap list. You know, wants to be you know able to constantly change. But that's because they're a small bar. When you see those you know hotel mm. groups become two and three, you know, again yeah. they they seem to want to lock it in. And I, I'm not sure whether it's contracts make um, the industry anti-competitive or whether that's just, uh, well, as we grow, we're going to sort of have stronger commercial partnerships and whether we sign a contract yeah. to those or not, we're still going to have, you know, relationships with bigger breweries because we're bigger as well. Yeah. Look, I understand where you're going with that and that, that in, in that case maybe for, especially at small breweries, supplying a, a, like a large chain of, Clearly, you know, when you're talking about the forecasting side, it clearly makes sense in that situation. Mm. But whether that needs to continue on for three years, I'm not so sure. Oh, and again, like I, I, it's funny because I actually don't have a view, but I spend my days having these conversations and trying to distill the various viewpoints. And it's always interesting to, uh, uh, you know, sort of take the, the thing that's been presented to me and present it to somebody else and you know, see what they make of it because that's how, uh, yeah, you, you sort of thrash these things out. It, look, the fact that in Australia and New Zealand, I'm not sure the exact of the laws, but they're very similar as far as, you know, you know contracts between breweries and bars. <laughs> it, it does create barriers to entry and it will, and will reduce the amount of total breweries in the market because it just limits the, the, the potential sales. But, um, yeah, my personal opinion is that the industry would be stronger without long-term contracts. But, yeah, mm. yeah I suppose everybody's got, got their own take on that. I, yeah. I bet your line would disagree with me. <laughs> yeah. 
And, and look, I, I honestly don't know what, if I was a bar owner, what my choice would be. You know, I've got a, a, a personal view about how I would like the, the industry to be. But then when you've got skin in the game, um, it, yeah. it, it's a little bit different. Absolutely. So, but let, let, let's go back uh, and, and sort of talk a little bit about the, the way that styles have changed over the almost 10 years that Deep Creek have been brewing. Um, you, you, your lineup is a little bit different and, and, and you do cover a, a very interesting uh, range. Just sort of looking at your website, you've got the, the Lotus Pale Ale um, and then you've also got the Redwood um, American Pale Ale. Um, you've got a Pilsner Lagerita, which is a lime sour. Um, you've got a low carb IPA, and then you've got a hazy IPA. So you've got a hazy pale ale. Sorry. So you've you've got a you seem to be touching a couple of checkpoints, but you don't have that the, the, the brown ale anymore, or you don't have the sort of uh, darker ones in your core range. Yeah, we've always struggled to to sell dark beers um, to compared to all of our other products, and it makes it difficult to to run a you know. To run a product that's having significantly lower pull through <laughs> yeah. than the other ones. Why um, do you think so that is? What what is it? Because it, it, it's something that I we hear know. in Australia as well. And there are some there were some beautiful uh, amber ales um, that have just disappeared. I, t- I tell you what, I, I think if you've got a um, a reputation as being a real solid, and I'm not saying that our, our dark beers weren't good, they're great, but unless you've got a reputation in the amongst the consumers that you make absolutely outstanding dark beers. I think they're incredibly difficult to sell because people, everybody says, oh, why don't you make stouts? We want, you know, stouts. But the problem is they'll drink one of them, then knock back four hazy IPAs. So you, you, they want them, but occasionally they don't want them all the time, which just basically slays your volumes. So, you know, and, and you, you, you can get away with making dark beers if you've got a reputation that's the go-to dark beer for people. But I think, yeah, it's never going to really compete with those sort of everyday go-to beers. Where do you see the market going? Obviously, hazy is hazy and sour um, are, the, are the two things that everybody uh, are, are turning to and consumers seem to be excited by. Do you, do you see that as a lasting trend? We're projecting for the next couple of years, hazy to continue at least till the end of 22. Um, and I think they'll always be around after that, but they may just sort of more fill into a less prominent position. Do you think that they could go the way of, uh, you know, at just when you were opening, you know, back in the uh, early 2010s, we, we had the IP, um, you know, bitterness race um, where everyone was trying to sort of outdo each other. At the moment, there seems to be a push to drive the haziest, the most, uh, you know, the cloudiest, the uh, fruitiest um, IPAs. Do you think that we'll see that settled back down into something that's a little bit more sort of moderated? I think it's a little bit different. I th- I'm not sure what went on back in you know the, the you know 2010 or let's say 2006 through to 2012, or whatever, where everyone was just going extremely bitter because it seemed to be, I don't know, it seems to me something that's not necessarily... At the time, I was in it as well, but retrospectively, it's not necessarily the best flavour profile. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, the I think with the hazies, like typically, you know, aside from the the um, appearance, I think typically when you're getting those sort of like fruity, juicy flavours, they are interesting and, and pleasant and nice. So I don't necessarily see that dying off. Um, 
maybe people worry less about haze and the amount of haze in the product. I'm not sure. I, I just I just don't know. I, 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 what I what I do think is that it'll get through a trend. Something else will come in and overtake that trend. But I don't think it's going to die like some previous trends have. How hard is it operating in in an environment uh, where you know again when uh, most breweries opened uh, ten years ago, I guess they sort of thought their core range was going to be you know, fairly fairly standard. How how hard is it operating when um, you know, we are seeing such a you know, styles thrown up and disappearing fairly quickly. Um, doesn't the only thing that really I find difficult with it is um, is just forward forecasting hops. So I mean, you know, you you go five years ago, you just could not get hold of Amarillo. It was it was like gold dust, and you know, same with Simcoe and certain other US hops. Now. Yeah, you know, they're giving them away, and if you had a big full contract on that, you wouldn't be using it. It'd be a, it'd be a nightmare trying to trying to utilise those hops and beers because they don't really go in hazies. Um, whereas now everybody wants mosaic, so that that's probably a little bit, you know, or citra or whatever. But that's a, probably a bit of difficulty around that uh, process-wise. I don't know. We've always made a lot of different styles of beer and everything, so our our kit's pretty pretty. Um, Universal, you know, we can make pretty much anything in it. So, just going back to the, that that hops question, what's driving the? Is it consumer demand for you know, so saying we've got mosaic in in this beer um, sells the beer, or is it just the brewer's preference for the way that they work in the brew house and uh, you know the, the flavors you're able to um, develop? From my perspective, um, mosaic just goes great in hazy beers, so it's just a they just taste better with with mosaic in them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, know, you can you can make beers good, but I mean mosaics are such a great for hazies. Yep. And obviously a lot of it's how you how you do it. But I, I think consumers are starting to pick up on the fact that hey, hang on, every time I have a beer with mosaic and it tastes great, so they're starting to drive at that end as well. What hops are exciting you at the moment? Because we've seen a couple of new hops from New Zealand, um, Australia, and also from the Pacific Northwest. What what hops are you know, exciting you? And we're really driving back into New Zealand hops at the moment. Um, so we we went a period of going very heavily into US hops, um, but we're, we're pushing hard back into New Zealand. So we're doing a lot of Motueka, a lot of Rewaka, which are you know older hops, but and then Nectaron's great, um, expensive but great. Um, and they're probably right now up, up three, well, along with Mosaic, our three biggest uh, hops. Why is that? What, what's uh, what's driving your switch back to uh, New Zealand hops? Uh, we're finding they're working pretty well in the hazes, um, and we're getting better pricing than we used to get, better better deals, and, we're, and reliability is the main thing. We used to every single January we'd order hops and they wouldn't turn up, and we're getting reliability now. It could be a factor of just being a bit, bit bigger, a bit more demand, which gives us slightly better ability to afford contract and, and work forward like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm very conscious of time. It's, this conversation has gone very differently. It has been great, which is uh, which is how we like these conversations to go. But um, yep. need to talk a little bit about uh, Deep Creek in the Australian market. You are available over here um, with uh, your, your core range, but you've also just done, uh, or halfway through, um, a, a series of collaborations with uh, Australian brewers. Talk us uh, through a little bit 
about what was the mindset there? Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the that's the lockdown range. So mm. basically, we um, we we just hired uh, Luke in um, Brisbane, mm. who basically was stuck in his house for four <laughs> months. Uh, we hired him, but he um, he came up with a plan. He's like, well, there's a lot of Australian breweries that um, local breweries that are struggling probably would would really like some a bit more exposure and to to get, get a bit more growth. And and for and the really struggling at the moment, and for us, it's um is, is a good way to basically engage with those breweries. Yeah, collabs always great for that sort of thing. We we get to engage with them, we get to learn a bit from them, they learn a bit from us, and um just really work forward. And like of all the times to do something like that, now is probably perfect. You know. And how how has it been sort of trying to come up with recipes for the collaboration uh, when everyone has been unable to travel and, you know, that, that idea of collaboration of brewers on the brew deck sharing ideas and experiences um, as they create this uh, collaboration recipe, that's uh, it, it's a very different model. You know, uh, it's, there's a new normal for collaborations. Yeah, so we've been just doing, I mean, we've done collaborations with Australian breweries before, Uh Say um, ballistics, a great example, and we um, we used to always do it uh, like over you know Google Meets or Zoom or something beforehand, in a way. So we always came up with the ideas before we flew over. Um, so for us, it's not a huge difference. It's only you know we'll say our, our Hebrew Hamish will just have a meeting with their guys, and um, I'll sit in or not, but and we'll just go through what we're trying to achieve and come up with a recipe. It hasn't been overly difficult for us. How has Australia been going as a market for you? It's been steady. It's, it's going well. Um, you know, it, it's um, it is quite a tough market. It's a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's a nearby one for us, but you still probably have some of the trappings of an export market. Um, you know, it, it's it's still our second biggest export market, and it's still you know doing a lot of a lot of volume. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty happy with it. It's um, and we we really enjoy the what we really like about Australia is the uh, position of the market that we're starting to 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 take. I think with the reputation's going well over there, and we're really happy with basically we're happy with the um, set of consumers that are that are drinking our beer. I think it's a it's a good reliable long term you know set of consumers. Well, Paul, I, I, I get the feeling that this conversation, that we could have a lot to talk about and that no doubt we'll get you on for another podcast, but I'm also very mindful of how long I've kept you and that you are running Daddy Daycare today. So. <laughs> yeah, my daughter's starting to she's watching Blippi now. But. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might have to let her out of the box. <laughs> so thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time and also being so, you know, uh, you know interesting uh, and open with your thoughts and, you know, uh, in, in engaging with this uh, chat so fully. Okay. Hopefully we will get to have a beer uh, as soon as uh, we, we can cross the Tasman. Yeah, absolutely. Or I should over there. Where, where exactly are you based? I'm based in Brisbane, so uh, yeah, not far oh, from Luke. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Next time I'm in Brisbane, I'll uh, have a beer with him. That'd be excellent. Well, uh, Paul, thank you very much, and all the best uh, with Deep Creek and also the uh, lockdown uh, collaboration series. That we'll uh, make sure that we post some uh, details in the show notes uh, uh, about. Absolutely. Awesome. And that was Deep Creek's Paul Brown. You can learn more about the Lockdown Collaboration Series in the show notes or on the Beer Cartel site. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Crime Mob. 
With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of this conversation and the Radio Brews News channel. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au.